0: All right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, with you, um, please get it out. Turn to that passage that we just uh, read. Actually, let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we'll be in John chapter 5 today as well, but John chapter 4, it'll be on the screen as well today, the passages, but a lot of it will not because it's a lot of text today, and so um, it wouldn't be a bad thing for you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. While you're turning there, uh, let me just start by asking you a question this morning. Uh, have you ever found yourself longing uh, for a miracle? Have you ever found yourself longing for a miracle? And I don't mean like um, asking God to let your favorite sports team win the championship, right? I don't mean that kind of miracle, though I've been there <laughs> in my younger years. I never forget uh, Huge Yankees fan. I was like born with pinstripes on in my house, okay? my like uncle, grandpa, you know, dad, or whatever. Um, I remember being a teenager. Um, on my hands and knees, literally, like ninth inning. Lord, if you do this one thing, I'll never ask anything of you again. And they lost. I never prayed again. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> some of us have been there, but I don't mean that. I mean, have you ever found yourself earnestly and legitimately crying out to God for something uh, that he can only do, uh, saying, God, there, there's, no, there's no solution here. Uh, the, the doctors have given up. The relationship is broken. Uh, it's over. Uh, there's, there's no hope here, Jesus. Uh, I'm in desperate need. Have you ever been there? Uh, some of us are there now. And in the passage that we are looking at today presents us with two stories that are centered around Jesus' miraculous healings. And what these stories do is they present for us a really complex relationship, a tension between Jesus' miracles on the one hand and our, our faith on the other hand. And I think for, for a lot of us, passages like this where we see Jesus doing the miraculous. They're, they're hard. Uh, honestly, for a lot of us, I think we don't really know what to do with these scriptures. Um, on the one hand, again, we read texts like this that say that Christ can enact miraculous healings, that Jesus can do incredible things. And so we want to believe that he can do the exact same thing in our own lives that he can heal the child cancer patient, that he can bring healing to the stroke victim, that he can give life to the the heart that has actually stopped beating, and on and on we can go. We desire for this level of faith. We strive to attain it. But on the other hand, we often read scriptures like this, and again, we feel some level of, of tension. Tension because sometimes the healing doesn't come. And other times, we just fear that the healing won't come. It's why at times we can even be timid in asking God for these types of miracles because we doubt or maybe we don't want to be left disappointed. Uh, Maybe God hasn't answered in the past, and so we no longer ask because we believe he doesn't care. Uh, Again, all these reasons create potential for tension, Well, it's to that tension, I believe our text today in John is helpful. Not in that it provides for us all of the answers as to how and why God chooses to bring about miracles in our world today. I wish I had all those answers for you. I'll be straightforward and honest from the beginning. I don't. But this text is extremely helpful to us in that the person behind the healings, the person behind the restoration the person behind the redemption, the one who is able, is made clear. You see, the thing about healings in Jesus' ministry, and particularly in our passage today, is that they are meant to point us not on the work that is being done, though it's amazing, but primarily, and most importantly, healings are meant to make our eyes look to the healer himself and to rest in him. So what I want to do this morning, it's pretty simple. I want to walk us through these two healing encounters. Um, I'm going to make some commentary, some comments along the way. And then at the end, we're just going to circle back around. um, And my hope is to show you what our lives should look like or what our lives need to look like in light of our encounter with Jesus the healer. Okay? So let's jump into the text together. And let's remember that right before this, right before this, Jesus has been in Samaria. Okay? We have seen numerous people coming to believe in him for the first time. They're coming in, in, in masses, uh, choosing to follow Jesus. But now we see Jesus leave that place and re enter Galilee, which is where he is from. Okay, so we'll start in verse 43 of chapter 4. It says this After the two days he departed from Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And we read that passage that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And what we expect is that Jesus is going to be rejected, right? That's what you would expect. There's no honor there. And so Jesus is rejected. But then John says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. He's talking about that wedding. We'll talk about that in a second. For they too had gone to the feast. And so what is John doing here? Well, it seems that actually John is trying to be a bit sarcastic. Even the authors of Scripture can be sarcastic. We see that here. He's preparing us for what's about to come. You see, this welcome that Jesus gets from these people wasn't truly genuine. It was empty. Because what we're going to find is that the people are, yes, they're very interested in Jesus' work. They're very interested in his healings, in his miracles, but they're not interested in the person. And, and I think John writes it this way to draw for us a contrast between the Jews and the Samaritans. Because remember, the Samaritans welcomed Jesus. Right? They, they accepted him for who he said that he was. He didn't have to do any miracles. He didn't have to show any signs. He just said, this is who I am, right? and they accepted and, and believed but that won't be the case here. Right? They don't honor him as the Lord and Savior like the Samaritans. So, so starting in verse 46 here, it, here's what we're told. It's not on the screen. Jesus enters into Cana, where he miraculously turned water into wine. Okay, at a wedding, we read about that a, a few weeks ago. And then he finds himself in Capernaum, and he meets this official. Okay? We're not told anything more than that. It's an official. Most likely, he was a Jewish government worker, and we learn that this official has a very sick child who is going to die, okay? And so, the official, in desperation, comes to Jesus, asking Jesus to come to his house to heal his son. Now, at first, you read that text, and there should be, uh, at least if you stopped there, a bit of optimism here, right? Especially coming off the the story with the Samaritans, right? All these people are following Jesus. Now here comes another man who's desperate and he's coming to Jesus. This man gets it, right? That's our thought. But then we read verse 48 and we see this isn't the case at all because Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Um, This is a little bit biting, isn't it? This is actually a rebuke. Jesus is calling him out, and he's actually calling out the crowd. He's like, hey, look, I'm glad that you came to me to get your son healing, but at the same time, I know that you're only here for that purpose. You're just here for the signs. You're just here for the wonders. And by the way, that you here is plural. He's talking to everyone. He says, unless I give not just this man, but All of you signs and wonders, you're not actually interested in me or the message that I've come to bring to you. So, we're seeing here what Jesus is truly after, right? We're seeing what Jesus came to do, yes, but who he's after and what he's after. And it's here where we also see where so many of us get off base when it comes to approaching Jesus in our own lives or with our own lives. And I'm going to say this very carefully. Okay? Very carefully. But it's here that Jesus is showing us that he is primarily concerned with the redemption of people's hearts, not merely alleviating people's physical suffering. Okay? Jesus is primarily interested in the hearts of people not merely, and again, every word here is carefully chosen, not merely in easing people's physical pain and suffering. Now, that being said, this, of course, does not negate Jesus' genuine, active compassion for suffering, okay? Uh, We know that Jesus cares deeply, and we know this because look at how Jesus responds to the official. Jesus does this, or says, sorry, the official says to the man, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. So Jesus heals. He shows compassion to the father. But again, Jesus' primary concern is spiritual conversion. We might say that Jesus is not content to just say, hey, you over there, you get a healing and you get a healing and you get a healing and you get a healing without getting a person's heart to change and transform. So we have to hold these two ideas together as we read the scriptures. Jesus is compassionate, yes. He shows grace and mercy. He heals this man's son, even though this man really doesn't get it. Jesus does care about our suffering, but at the same time, he firstly and mostly wants healing and restoration of the heart. See that? Well, at Jesus' promise of healing, the man seems in some level to take that word and he leaves, okay? He goes on his way. Whatever it is that Jesus said, maybe he didn't say more, we don't know, but however Jesus said it, it seems to convince him that he can now go home. But let's take note, okay? You can read New Testament scholars on this. It's pretty universally true and clear and accepted that there is no indication here that this man really understands who he was just with, and there is no evidence that he truly sees Jesus, that he accepts Jesus. He accepts, at some level, the miracle but doesn't necessarily accept the man. He'll get there in a few verses, but right now he has just come to Jesus the way that people would approach, let's say, the genie in the lamp. Right? There's no concern for the genie of the lamp, unless you're Aladdin. Okay? Your only concern is the wishes. Right? And that's this official here. And you know what's interesting? I was thinking about this this week. What the official asks for, what he is seeking, is a good thing, Let's not be mistaken of that. There's nothing wrong with him wanting his son to be healed. We'd all want that. We'd all travel miles upon miles to get that, We understand his heart here. But the problem is that he cared little for Jesus. That's the issue. He wanted the healing. He wasn't concerned with the healer. And, And honestly, this is our hearts as well. We are this official. This speaks, by the way, all of this, to the deceitfulness of the human heart. That you and I can actually turn good things, God, God-honoring things, we can turn those things into selfish desires. We can give our lives to ministry, sacrifice ourselves for the gospel, but still miss Jesus. We can give ourselves to reaching the lost, to reaching our neighbors, all the while being only concerned for our own image. Right? We, we can want to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We can raise them up to follow Jesus, while our primary concern in doing that is what are other people going to think about me? Right? See, the human heart is impressively deceitful. It's astounding, really, how we can take God-honoring things pursue them with all that we are, and still miss the person of Jesus Christ while we do it. And John is writing these passages to us to say, don't miss the person. Look at the king. See Christ, the Savior, the Messiah in everything. Well, if you're not familiar with the rest of the story, the official is on his way home. Okay? He goes home, and before he actually even reaches his house, his servants come out to him to meet him, and they basically say this, hey, you're not going to believe this, but your son is healed. He's healed. He's healthy. And as soon as the official finds out when this took place, he actually asked, when did that happen? What, t- what happens? And they give them the hour. He realizes it's about the exact same hour that Jesus said that your son would live, And it's at that moment, now, the man gets it. How long in between he doesn't get it and get it, we don't know. Was it an hour? Was it a three-hour journey? I don't know. But now he gets it. John tells us in verse 53 that he and his household come to a place where they truly believed. Again, not just in the healing, not just in the signs, not just in the miracles, not just in the fanfare, but in the Christ. And this seems to be the role that Jesus' miracles are supposed to play in our own lives. Listen now, miracles, miracles are not meant to be the product of our faith. A lot of people groups, a lot of denominations teach that. Miracles are not meant to be the product of our faith. And they are also not meant to be the foundation of our faith the thing in which we built our faith around or upon. But rather, Jesus' miracles most often serve primarily as a catalyst to our faith or for our faith. They point us to Christ. They drive us to the one who heals both the outward and the inward person. Can't miss that here today. So that's the first encounter. We're moving through these quickly. Let's look at the second one. We're not told exactly when, but we see that Jesus then travels to Jerusalem for another feast. A lot of festivals and eating with Jesus, right? He'd be a good one to follow. A lot of parties, a lot of meals with Jesus. But people have come to Jerusalem for a feast, including Jesus, his disciples, and then John sets the stage for us in verses two and three of chapter five. He tells us, that in Jerusalem, there is this pool of water. By the way, uh, you can still go there uh, today, the, the site where they believe that pool is. Um, I've personally been there. It's pretty astounding. It's a much bigger than you would expect, actually. It's pretty, pretty large. And, and the Bible tells us, along with Jewish tradition, that people who were suffering from physical illnesses, issues, they would tend to hang out around this, this pool. The blind, the lame, okay? the sick, because they believed that this pool of water, this, this small body of water, had some healing power. Okay? Tradition says that what would happen is this angel, okay, now and then, would come by. Again, this is tradition. We don't know if this is actually true. Just Jewish tradition. This angel would come by, Dip his finger in the water, stir the waters, and at that, it's a race. Okay? First person who cannonballs into the water gets healing. Okay? Not quite that like that, but the first person who finds themselves in the water gets healing. And so, people would just literally wait around this pool day in, day out for the waters to be stirred. And now, Jesus shows up. At this site. And let's not forget the significance of this. This is why it's so important to teach the Bible in context, number one. And number two, one of the reasons that we commit ourselves to expositional teaching, teaching through the Bible verse by verse, in order, through books. Why? Because let's remember where Jesus was just a few moments ago and who he was with. Jesus has just been in Samaria at a well with a woman. And what was his message? I have living water that you can drink from to receive eternal life. He's saying, I am living water. I am healing. There is life in me and my name. And now he goes to this pool where people are seeking life. He goes to this water where people are, re- are seeking restoration. Right, don't miss the significance of that. This is intentional. And so Jesus gets to this pool of water, and we're told this in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. It just means he's paralyzed. He cannot walk. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And let me say this. It would be easy to miss this in the English uh, language. This is not an inquiry, Okay? Like, hey, are you interested in healing? Jesus knows why he's there, right? No, this is an offer, okay? It's an invitation. Do you want me to heal you is the question. And and the response from the man is quite jaded, actually. It's hopeless. It says this, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me... He misses it. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going... When it's stirred up, another one steps down into the water before me. By the way, from the man, there's also a little bit of sarcasm here. John's playing with sarcasm in this text. It's almost like he's telling Jesus, Have you not looked at me? (laughs) Like, come on, of course, of course I want to be healed, but look at me. I can't get into the pool. And why would anyone here help me when they need help themselves? They need restoration too, so why would anyone help me be restored? But even with this lack of sort of faith, lack of understanding, Jesus chooses, like with the official, to show compassion. Jesus acts, he heals. Verse 8 Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once this man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, it's at this point, right after Jesus heals, we're waiting for the climactic response, right? It would make sense in John's gospel what he has chosen to do. If it ended in chapter five, it would be, okay? The man, right, he just gets up after 30, for 38 years, right? He's been paralyzed. He gets up, and we expect that he rejoices, And that he chooses to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus. That this miracle was a catalyst for his faith. And then he would go out, right? You can picture the scene. He would go out like the Samaritan woman and and tell everyone in Jerusalem, right? Come see this man who, who restored me, who healed me. That should be the story. But it's not. Far from it, actually. Because what actually ends up happening is this man... So ironically, this man actually becomes the focal point of an entire community that does not believe. Remember what John has already told us in the beginning. A prophet has no honor among his own town, his own people. And now we're going to see that. These people refuse to get it. And why? Well, we're told in verse 9, because this healing happened on... An important day of the week. It happened on the Sabbath. Look at this in verse 10. The man goes to the Jews, the religious leaders. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed or to take up your mat. So the problem isn't specifically Jesus at this point. The issue is with the man who has picked up his mat on the Sabbath day. See, in the Old Testament, God's people were given this command to rest on the Sabbath. It's a command. You have to take a day off. Okay? And out of fear, fear of breaking that command, a group of men came together and they made rituals and traditions to make sure that people followed this command to rest. And one of those rules was... You cannot work on this day, and more specifically, that included that you were not allowed or were not supposed to move things, okay, from one place to another, including your mat, the place that you would rest or lie down on. It's crazy, really, okay. If you think about what these rules, crazy, but this was the culture. And this was the system that the Jews had established for themselves and for their people. This wasn't God's way. It was their way. And so, get this. Don't miss this. After 38 years, okay, this man is healed. He is walking 38 years. I'm 37. I haven't even been alive that long. 38 years he's walking, and yet... The first response of the Jewish leaders is: hey, what are you doing picking up your mat? Right? It's the Sabbath. Do you know what day it is? What do, you, what do you think you're doing? Right? This man has gone from sick to well, which is God's plan. It's his purpose. Taking people from death to life, right? Jesus has restored this man physically, and all these people can say is put down your mat rather than praise be to God. These people are blinded by their own traditions. They're blinded by their own rules. But again, like the official, similar parallel here, this is also what we tend to do. We put up barriers to Jesus and the gospel. We do this. Tradition gets in the way of people seeing and rejoicing in the work and person of Jesus Christ. It happens all the time, right? Perhaps for for many of us here, you've been in churches, or maybe you've been in a situation where man-made rules have gotten in the way of worship, right? You've got to dress a certain way. You've got to act a certain way. You've got to look this way or do this particular thing, And they are all barriers to truly meeting Jesus and rejoicing in his glorious work. I hope we never get to that point here at FEC. Well, the situation gets worse because this man who has been healed, confronted by the Jewish leaders, he now has the opportunity to testify about the compassion of Jesus, but he fails. And rather than exalting Christ, he essentially, what he does is he throws Jesus under the bus. They ask him, Why did you pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath? And his response, Well, there was this man over by the pool. He made me do it. This kind of sounds familiar, like in the garden. <laughs> and get this when the Jews ask him, Okay, then. Who's the man who did this then over there? Tell us about him. We're told in verse 13 of chapter 5, he didn't even know who healed him. <laughs> he didn't know. Didn't know his name. Didn't bother to ask. He took the healing. Sound familiar? But he missed the healer. See, see the tragedy and irony of this, you have to see it. The miracle and the law The miracle in the law overshadows here the person who does the miracle and the person who came to fulfill and free these people from the law. What's even crazier is that it's actually Jesus who goes to find the man. Knowing his heart, Jesus goes and looks for him. And look what happens. We see this in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Oh, wow, like he's surprised, right? See, you are well. Oh, you're walking. Imagine that, right? Then he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, Jesus is not just concerned with the physical. He wants the heart. That's the message. The man went away and told the Jews, that it was Jesus who healed him. Again, Jesus actually finds the man. Wow, you're healthy. Then he invites him to see his sin, to, to turn his life around, to believe. But what is the man's response? He actually uses this second encounter, this second meeting with Jesus, not as a testimony, but to be a tattletale. He actually uses it to tell on Jesus. Oh, I got his name now. And he actually goes back to the Jews to tell on Jesus. And it's from this point forward that the Gospel of John takes a very drastic shift. Where the Jews turn against Jesus. We're going to see this in the weeks to come. That they are out now to ruin Jesus and eventually... Far from now, we will see they they killed Jesus. (laughs) But what is Jesus' response to the trials and the persecution that he faces? What is his response to the Jews' concern about him doing things on the Sabbath? That's their heart. That's their concern. centered on the Sabbath. You're breaking the law. What's his response? It's actually quite profound. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Incredible. Incredible. Because this is is nothing less, from Jesus, nothing less than a claim to have the same Sabbath privileges as God the Father himself. Have to see this. Jesus is very pointedly claiming to be God here once again. Again. You see, we, we know in the scriptures, in the creative order, God creates, and then on the seventh day, God rested from his creation, right? from his creating. right? He creates the universe, we're told. He creates our world, everything in it, including us. And then on day seven, on day seven, we learn that God rests. But understand what that means or what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that on the seventh day that God rested from upholding the universe. It doesn't mean that God rested from carrying out his redemptive plan. God never stops doing that, right? So in a sense, it is true that God is always at work. And Jesus is saying here, I'm doing the same. I'm always at work. In other words, The way that you see God and his responsibility to the Sabbath, the way that you see the Father, his responsibility to the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, it's the same with me. What he's saying to them is, listen, you have no problem with God upholding the universe on the Sabbath. Do you? you have any issue with that? Do you have any uh, issue with him sustaining your life on the Sabbath? Like every breath that you breathe, you can't without him. Do you want him to rest from that? Of course not. And so what he's saying is, give me those same privileges. Why? Because I and the Father are one. I'm God. It's incredible. I've told you, there's so many scholars, so many religious leaders and groups that say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Read the Bible. <laughs> okay? Read the Bible. He's claiming to be God here. And so it is, it's certainly here then. This is why I piece these two stories together. Because it's certainly here that we have the climax and the purpose of both of these healing stories. The purpose of the miracles was to point us to the identity of the miracle worker. That's the point. Jesus says, don't just take notice of what I'm doing or what I can do. Take notice of who I am. Your God is here. I'm here with you. Look at me. Believe in me. Follow me. I am the, the proper object of your worship, of your obedience, of your faith. Right? That's the takeaway here. So now, in light of these miracles, the closing moments I have with you today, I, I want us to consider what does it look like for us? Because It's hard to... How do we apply this to our own own lives? What does it actually look like for us to receive the redeeming work of Christ? How do we properly receive Jesus' restorative work in our lives? Because we've now seen two examples of how not to do it, right? The official responds in the right way in the end, but we've seen how not to initially receive So first, and I'm going to give you four really quickly. We're going to get through this in six minutes. Okay. So write with eagerness, urgency, if you need to, or just take a picture of the four points at the end. Save you the time. So first, to receive Jesus' redeeming work in our lives, we need to agree with his assessment of our spiritual condition. We need to agree with his assessment of our spiritual condition, of course, and then we need to believe. That's what's really underlining both of these stories, where where Jesus is showing himself as the healer. Jesus' primary concern as he encounters broken, sinful, hurting people is to redeem them, to call them to believe, to rescue their hearts for eternal life. But what that requires on our end is agreeing. It's actually, um, it's actually, with our hearts and our minds, it's ascending to the reality that we are broken. It's coming to a place where we know and recognize that we need help. I'll just say it really frankly here. Okay? I don't want to beat around the bush at all. Receiving Jesus' work as the healer, as the restorer, means agreeing with him that you are severely messed up. And so am I. Right? This is actually, people don't like this, but this is actually what Jesus is saying over us. You are severely messed up. But, listen now, as he speaks that over us, as he does that, he is simultaneously inviting us to look to him for help. This is the gospel. And this is the purpose of John's writing altogether. The purpose of the whole book, let's remember, is that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that we would look to him. Not just that Jesus was a miracle worker, but also that the same Jesus has been made Lord in Christ through his death and his resurrection. Second, to receive Jesus' redeeming work in our lives, we need to receive his compassion for those suffering in a fallen world. We need to receive his compassion for those suffering in a fallen world. Again, we know Jesus is primarily concerned with our hearts, but listen again. God also weeps over our broken, fallen world. That is also true. He weeps, mourns over the pain and suffering that we face. He sees your hurt today. So we might say, again, Jesus is primarily concerned with our hearts, but he is not disinterested in our lives. That's a good way to think of it, maybe. Jesus is primarily concerned with our hearts, but he is not disinterested in your life. And that includes your physical well-being. He has compassion on those who are suffering, which means we who have been shown compassion also need to turn around and show compassion to others. It's how we respond and receive Jesus' redeeming work in our lives. Third, to receive Jesus' redeeming work in our lives, we need to believe in his power. This is very important. You actually have to believe he can do it. I know the focus today has been on who Jesus is, and normally is here at our church. But that being said, we cannot neglect the reality that, that a key underlying truth here in our text today is that Jesus is not only able, but he is willing to heal. Don't miss that. He is not only able, okay, but he is willing to heal. Jesus can heal. Jesus does heal, which means when you are suffering, when you need help, when you need restoration, you are going to the right person when you go to the person of Jesus Christ. And how do we go to him in those moments of brokenness? When that healing is needed, we go to him with faith, with confidence, believing and knowing his power, We go to him and we cry out for his healing, asking him to do what only he can do. We should pray this way, knowing that that we're praying to the God who made the sun stand still. Mountains move. Raised people from the dead. We go to him with that kind of confidence, with that boldness, with that assurance, Why? Because our faith is not based on the extent of the miracle that's needed. It's based on the person who is able to do the miracles. It's based on a God who is compassionate. See how these two, these things all work together? It's about the gospel in our hearts, yes, but it's also believing that he can heal, right? I had the luxury of growing up in a charismatic church, and then I went to a Baptist school, right? So I get both, right? Right? So yeah, it's about the gospel, it's about your heart, and yep, he can heal. It works both. Right. Put those two together. Right. And then finally, to receive Jesus' redeeming work in our lives, we need to anticipate his final rescue. Okay? I almost stopped the message at 3, and I thought, nope, no, nope, it's very important to get the 30,000-foot view here. Let's get on the airplane and look down. We have to anticipate his final rescue. That's a way to receive his redeeming work in our lives. This is the climax of the gospel, actually. That Jesus' incredible, redemptive, restorative plan, his healing inward and outward, it actually is coming to an end. And you know where it ends? There's a moment. It ends with this Jesus who was crucified, buried, and risen, it ends with him returning to us and putting an end to all brokenness, all sickness, all disease, all pain. And this is why in the midst of our hurt, we can not only just run to him, but we can throw ourselves on him. It's, It's why we can ultimately place our complete faith in him because Jesus, yes, heals now, But we also know that one day he will fully heal all things finally and completely. The work of redemption will be complete for those of us who have looked to him here and now. So as we close today, I hope at least this much is clear. As followers of Jesus, we are called to care about all suffering especially eternal suffering. i say that again. As followers of Jesus, we are called to care about all suffering, all of it, but especially eternal suffering, because Jesus cares. All hurt, all pain, and all brokenness is against the way that things should be, which means those of us now who have been redeemed, have been restored, have been healed, we are called to go out and proclaim this message of redemption and reconciliation to the world. It means that we are to cultivate in our own hearts and lives Christ-like compassion so that our eyes can see and so that our hearts can be moved by the brokenness that's all around us. This is the ministry that Jesus has invited us into. And listen, I know this can be overwhelming, and the reality is, we cannot help everyone. We can't. We can't help anyone without the Spirit's help. But we can help everyone. But, with God's help, each of us can commit to start caring for one. Because let's not forget, it's easy to miss this detail, There were a multitude of people at the pool that day in John 5. There's a lot of people at that pool, a lot of people who needed healing the day that Jesus arrived. But Jesus just started with one. So let's do that. Start with one. And when you find that one, you have one primary job. And that is, point them to Jesus Not to workspace religion, not to man-made rules, not to the signs and the miracles, but to the person of Jesus Christ. Call them to see and to believe in the Christ. That's our message. See him, believe him, look at Jesus, trust in him, trust in the Christ, the one who can redeem, the one who can restore the one who can heal hearts and lives. Amen? Let me pray for you.